danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will and welcome to episode 341 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Owings Mills, Maryland, I am Andrew Brokus. I'll be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by today's guest, Patrick McKenzie, who is in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, Patrick, you may have heard on episode 209, is uh, also known as Patio11 on Hacker News and elsewhere. He is a blogger, consultant, and all-around public intellectual writing on subjects related to software and business. Uh, He is also, of course, a poker player. Um, He currently works at Stripe. Uh, and so, you know, we talked to him about all of that, about his prodigious output, about what it means to be a public intellectual and how that interacts with his uh, work at Stripe, and how poker fits into all of that, how and why he finds time for poker. Um, we also talk a bit about a uh, bit of a struggle that he's had with uh, depression and seeking help for that. Um, yeah, overall, an interesting conversation with um, perhaps one of the more uh, prominent amateur poker players out there, although there are quite a lot of them. Um, also have some uh, big news for you before we get on to the strategy segment. We have a brand new podcast totally new podcast, all strategy. I know there are some folks who uh, especially like the strategy segment of our podcast, and now you can get a pure strategy podcast. It comes out five days a week. It is available exclusively to supporters of the show. You can support us through Patreon, www.patreon slash thinkingpokerdaily. Thinking Poker Daily is the name of the show. This is a great way for you to both support the free version of the podcast, uh, help us to continue putting out the regular show, and also get access to the new Daily Strategy Podcast. Each episode of the show will feature uh, two of Nate Carlos and myself, so we'll have a rotating uh, cast of two hosts, um, two of us discussing Sometimes a hand, sometimes a strategy concept, uh, sometimes even just a single decision point within a hand. Uh, you know we're capable of being wordy, but we're trying to keep it efficient for this show and just give you uh, you know quick, efficient bursts of poker strategy every day. Uh, that, again, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. We'll have a link in the show notes, uh, links on Twitter, etc. Uh, hopefully it won't be too hard for you to find this. Uh, Also, if you're doing any kind of holiday shopping, uh, be sure to check out the Knitcast store, www.nitcast.com, knitcast.com. And you can find lots of great gifts for yourself or the poker player in your life. Uh, That would include the Weekend Warrior uh, Premium Strategy Podcasts. There are some oriented towards cash games, some oriented towards tournaments, uh, the Exploiting Small Stakes Tournaments video that I did with Carlos Welch. That has been uh, hugely popular, very entertaining, lots of good strategy content in there. You know, it's uh, six hours of Carlos, what's not to love. 
what else is on there? You've got uh, Play Optimal Poker eBooks, Play Optimal Poker One and Two, or if you want the paperback, you can get that from Amazon. Um, yeah, just just heaps of good stuff there on uh, NickCast.com. It's another great way for you to support the show. So I've got a hand coming to us from Ryan. Ryan writes, hello, Andrew and Nate. This is Ryan from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm a huge fan of the show, all of Andrew's Tournament Poker Edge series, and I'm currently in the middle of round two with thinking, uh, he said thinking optimal poker, but I'm sure he means play optimal poker. Uh, Nate, I haven't watched your series on TPE, but I do have a hand history you did in 2014 chambered, not because I think it'll improve my poker game, but just because I like listening to you talk. Anyway, I moved to St. Louis six months ago for work, and have been hitting the local casinos about once a week since I've been here. This hand comes from a 1-2 game. I've been trying to study and think about ranges and range advantage more lately, and I think it heavily influenced how I play this hand, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm going to give you the entire hand, uh, including the results, because I trust you all not to be results-oriented. You're thinking poker listeners, you know better, so I'll just give you the entire hand. Um, most of my commentary actually is going to have to do with the, um, the flop bet and the flop bet size, so pay particular attention to that. We're seven-handed, and I'm in the low jack with $315. This is the 1-2 no-limit game. I open to $7 with 8-7 of spades, and get called by the button in both blinds, all of whom have me covered. I would say the general skill level in this room is pretty abysmal, but this table seems to have four or five players waiting for a 2-5 game to open up, including the main villain in the hand, so the competition is a little stiffer than usual. The flop is 10 of clubs, 6 of diamonds, deuce of spades, our hero is holding 8-7 of spades, and both blinds check. Ryan says, This board is very uncoordinated with no high cards, so I think this is an excellent spot to make large bets with my strongest hands, such as ace-10 and overpairs, balanced with some bluffs like 8-7 suited, 9-8 suited, and some suited queen-x and jack-x hands that have backdoor draws. I decided to bet $25 into the $25 pot and only the button called, making the pot $74 after rake with $283 in the effective stacks. Based on the limited interaction I've had with this player so far, I would say he is a fairly tight, strong player, but I don't have much beyond that. The turn is the Queen of Hearts, making the board. Queen of Hearts, 10 of clubs, 6 of diamonds, deuce of spades, our hero has 8-7 of spades. At this point, I think my range advantage has shrunk considerably to the point where the button's range is stronger than mine. The button should have most sets in his range and should have some two-pair combos with queen-10. That said, I should be the only one with queens and I should have more 10-10 than he does as he might 3-bet it. I also still have the top of my preflop range intact with aces and kings, so I still have several hands I'd want to value bet here, and I should have some pretty airy hands like the one I actually hold that will benefit from bluffing. Given there are no flush draws, the best hands for bluffing should be hands like 8-7, 9-8, and jack-9. I bet $35, the button thinks a little while, and calls. When he just calls, I think I can eliminate a lot of his strongest hands, like sets of 2s, 6s, and 10s, because it's, he's at serious risk of not getting stacks in by the river if he just calls. The pot is now $144, with $248 in the effective stacks. The river is the ace of spades, making the final board ten of clubs, six of diamonds, deuce of spades, queen of hearts, ace of spades. Our hero has eight seven of spades, so eight high. Um, and he says, I don't know how this card changes ranges. On the one hand, it gives my aces a set and probably gives me some two pair with ace ten and maybe ace queen, although I don't know that the latter is in my range as played. 
The villain maybe has some two parry anterior like ace 10, but his range quickly turns into third pair and worse, which means he will probably overfold to a reasonably sized bet. I can't think of a better bluffing candidate than the hand I actually have, so I bet $100 into the pot of 144. The river is the part of the hand I'm most confused about. Villain obviously has some showdown value, so I don't think a small bet would be effective. A large bet, such as going all in, would be very effective as a bluff, but I don't have a good value target for my sets in two pair hands. I don't know. Poker is hard. What do you guys think? Uh, villain thought for about five minutes, apologized several times for taking so long, and then finally called and showed ace-king offsuit for a rivered one pair. So as I said, I mean, I will comment on the entire hand. I actually think I have the most to say about the flop bet. And this is, uh, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't understand multi-way pots that well. Which, you know, if you're playing a live 1-2 game, you're going to be in a lot of multi-way pots. So I think it, it behooves you. And, you know, I know a lot of poker strategy books, including mine, um, tend to focus on heads-up pots because... They are kind of easier to talk about. There's there's fewer variables, um, but you do run into problems sometimes when you try to extrapolate from how you would play a hand in a heads up pot to how you're going to play a hand in a four way in a yeah in a four way pot. Not that this is necessarily how I'd play the hand in a heads up pot either. But um, so you know our hero opens with eight seven suited, which is fine. Um, it gets called by the button in both blinds. We go to the flop. We're still fairly deep, right? There's um. 25-ish dollars in the pot and 300 hours or so in the effective stack. So we're looking at a stack-to-pot ratio of 12 or something. Um, and I think Im implicit in Ryan's assessment of the hand is that he has uh, like a, a nuts advantage here or you know that because he's going to have a lot of overpairs. Um, you know, he's kind of assuming that he would want to make a large bet with his overpairs or with his top pair hands. And the truth is, you know, in a, a four-way pot with a stack-to-pot ratio of 12, uh, even on a really dry board like this one, you know, over, pa over pairs and, and top pair, those are not nutty hands where you're looking to play for stacks. I mean, they're very good hands. It's true that he does have a range advantage on this board relative to the other players. I mean, first off, we're dealing with, you know, one, two players. They probably have fairly wide calling ranges pre-flop, so they're not going to be, like, super strong with their calling ranges. And then some of them are calling out of the blinds. So the big blind in particular is going to have kind of a weak range. Um, this is a difficult flop to hit. He's the only player with overpairs. And even if you're not going to stack off with overpairs, they're still very strong on this board. So, I mean, I do think that there's a significant range advantage for Ryan here. I think he's right that um, he's going to have... This is going to be a relatively high c-betting frequency spot for him, given that this is a four-way pot. In other words, if we think about all the different flops that could come in a four-way pot, this is one of the better ones for him to continuation bet. However, the baseline strategy in a four-way pot is that you really shouldn't be betting all that often. <laughs> I mean, certainly not at the frequency that you would be betting in a, in a heads-up pot. You're out of position to one person. You've got both both players in the blinds. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to see continuation betting frequencies in the neighborhood of like 70 to 80%. So this is not just a you know fire with any two cards kind of spot. Now, admittedly, that's not what Ryan is doing. I mean, he has some pretty specific reasons for betting with his hand, and I agree that his hand is a, is a pretty good betting candidate. Uh, it has some nuttiness to it. It um, it benefits a lot from folds. I mean, a lot of just you know better overcard hands uh, may fold to a bet, even though in this case it did not. Um, but he's got the backdoor flush draw. He's got the uh, gut shot to the nuts. Uh, so I, I do think that his hand is a nice betting candidate. I do think he should do a fair bit of betting in this spot. But you do have to be careful because it's a four-way pot. 
The main way that that being careful manifests itself is I don't think you want to be just potting it here. Um, in multi-way pots in general, you should be using smaller bet sizing. Uh, there's just not... There's a few reasons for this. Uh, one is that ranges, like equity is not as, as concentrated as it can be in a heads up pot. Like you're not really going to have hands that are just like massive favorites in, in a multi-way pot. It's very hard to have a hand that's a massive favorite in a multi-way pot. Um, and so you're not going to have that many hands that, that like most of your bets are going to be, your betting strategy is just a little bit more linear. Um, uh, in a multi-way pot, you're benefiting any hand that you're benefiting that you're betting is benefiting to a substantial degree from fold equity. Um, and so, you know, you don't need large bets to get fold equity. If your opponents have hands like King Jack, um, it's generally not going to take a large bet to get them off of those. Or you know, Queen Eight. Um, you know, there's a lot of hands that you are going to benefit from causing them to fold, whether you have. Pocket jacks, ace king, nine eight. You know those are all hands where you're interested in making your opponent fold or making you know, some of your opponents fold some of their unpaired hands. Even if you don't cause everyone to fold, right? Even if you're not folding out all three players, you're still benefiting from fold equity. If you get the pot heads up, you're increasing the likelihood that you win the pot, and, and that has value. You're causing other players to fold equity, and so you you accumulate their equity. <laughs> but you and your opponent. Uh, if, if you know if the pot ends up heads up after the flop as it did here, what happens is both of the blinds fold away hands that had some chance of winning, and their equity goes to um, our hero and to the villain. <laughs> so the, the, you are benefiting from fold equity in, in, in multi-way pots. You're not generally betting so polarized. In other words, it's not just like I'm betting either extremely strong or extremely weak hands and nothing in between. There are very few hands that are like extremely strong in a four-way pot. I mean, if you have a set of tens, maybe, but uh, you know, like aces, for instance, is not really a hand where we're looking to play for for stacks. Even pocket deuces may not be a hand. I mean, against weaker players, maybe it is, but you know, even pocket deuces uh, may not be a hand that we're looking to play for uh, for, for for stacks here. They're just ranges aren't that polarized and. Um, I don't know. I don't really think that you'd want to bet twenty-five dollars if you had aces. Uh, I don't think you'd want to bet twenty-five dollars if you had queen ten. You certainly wouldn't want to bet twenty-five dollars if you had ace king, pocket nines, pocket eights, pocket sevens. Even though those are all hands that would benefit from betting. Like there's a there's a fair chance that ace king or pocket nines is good, even in a in a three-way pot. They're both obviously hands that benefit a lot from fold equity. So you want to be able to bet this. Uh, the other thing about bet sizing in multi-way pots is you don't need as large of a bet in order to make other players indifferent to calling you. You know, in a, in a heads-up pot, there's a much greater risk that you're bluffing, and so your opponent has more incentive to call with relatively weak hands, um, some of which might have some showdown value, some of which might be like floats or backdoor draws and stuff. Um, but you know, you you have a lot more incentive to just you know, bet with weak hands if your opponent folds too often. In a, in a three-way pot or four-way pot, um, you know, it's not very likely that you're going to just bluff and get through three players. So no individual player really needs to continue all that often. Like, and the, the standards for any individual player to continue with their hand should be much higher than what they would be facing the same size bet in a, in a heads-up pot. Um, you know, I think if, if imposition has a hand, even just like King Jack with no backdoor flush draw, if it's just heads-up between you and the button and you see about this flop, that might be a reasonable call on his part. Like if you just make a one-third pot bet or a half-pot bet and he's in position holding King Jack on 10-6 deuce rainbow, 
you know, that, that might well be a reasonable call on his part. Um, in a four-way pot, there's a lot of reasons for him not to call with that. First, it's less likely that you're bluffing because you're betting into three people instead of one. So his chances of, you know, king high being good, his chances of making the best hand if he hits a king or a jack, his chances of stealing the pot with a bluff, all those things go down uh, as a result of this being a four-way pot. Additionally, he has to worry about the risk that one of the other players in the pot who act after him will call or even check raise. And that's also going to reduce the value of him calling with King Jack. Like if he knew for a fact that both blinds were going to fold, then he could kind of play this like a heads up pot, except for the fact that your betting range should be stronger than it would be in a heads up pot. But other than that, you know, he could he could kind of play it as a heads up pot. But the risk of the blinds calling or raising, there's there's a squeeze effect. <laughs> Just like you know, we talk about squeezing preflop, there's a squeeze effect here. He has these players behind him, and that means that he has to be more cautious with his own calling. So even if your bet seems to offer him a pretty good price, like even if you only bet something like one third or one half pot, uh, it's still kind of a tough spot for him when he's holding a hand like King Jack uh, because because of all those other factors. So I don't think it really makes sense to, to pot it. And I think we see the consequences of that because then our hero kind of says, well, you know, at this point, I don't really have a range advantage anymore. Um, but then he, he chooses to keep betting anyway. And I think, I mean, if, if he's, I don't necessarily think that's a mistake, but I think if you're barreling at a queen, there's probably not too many turns that you wouldn't be barreling at. Like, I think you can make a lot of the same arguments about, you know, I still have a lot of strong hands here that I want to bet, and 9-8's going to be a good bluffing candidate. I mean, that's going to be true on almost any turn card. Um, if you're planning on barreling turns anyway, it's not even really in your interest to maximize your fold equity on the flop. Right? If you bet $25 on the pot, your opponent is mostly going to just continue with pretty good hands. And it's going to be harder to get them off of those good hands on the turn. If you bet half pot on the flop and get called, there's going to be more weak hands in your opponent's range. And that's good for a couple of reasons. Right? I mean, his, his calling range against a half pot bet should be weaker than his calling range against a full pot bet. That's fairly straightforward. Um, and that, that's actually to your advantage. If you're planning on bluffing the turn anyway, then letting him call the flop with weak hands that are mostly just going to fold to your turn bet anyway is is good. Like You make more money if he calls flop and folds turn than you do if he just folds immediately on the flop. Uh, you also lose less if you get raised on the flop. Um, the other thing is sometimes when you bet on a 10-6 deuce flop with 9-8, sometimes you turn a pair. Right? The turn could be a 9, the turn could be an 8. And when that happens you want there to be a good chance that you will have the best hand. You don't want to turn a pair and then still have to be bluffing. The larger you bet on the flop, the less likely it is that your hand will be good if you turn a pair. This is a concept that I call equity preservation in Play Optimal Poker. That there are certain hands where even though you're bluffing, you still want to think about how you're changing your opponent's range because of the possibility that your hand improves on later streets, you want to be able to take advantage of that. You don't want to kill the value of turning a pair. Now, in this case, that didn't happen. I mean, the, the hero got called by ace-king, so turning a pair of nines or eights would have been good for the hero. Um, I think, though, that ace-king is probably one of the weaker hands. I mean, it seems like it's one of the weaker hands this player would have shown up with. We're not even really expecting him to have ace-king based on uh, not pre-betting preflop, which I think is likely a mistake on his part. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I think in general, like the, when you bet this large, you're mostly going to get called by a top pair or better, and your equity against that hand is very bad. Like you mostly have you know you've got shot in a vector or flush draw against top pair or better. If you can expand players' calling range to include more unpaired hands, lower pocket pairs, uh, pair sixes, uh, now your nine eight suitors can perform much better against those. More fold equity on the turn, more equity when you turn a pair. Um, in terms of you know whether this is a good hand to barrel with on a queen turn, so our hero with his uh, I, I've been saying nine eight I think it's actually eight seven that he had, but you know all the same arguments apply. Um, so you now the, the turn is a queen. Now we have queen ten six deuce rainbow. I mean you can certainly make a case for betting again with this hand, but um, I do think like you know he mentioned jack nine kind of in passing. Like jack nine is a much better barreling hand here. Now it requires you to bet jack nine on the flop, so you have to kind of anticipate that this might happen. But I do think jack nine is a fine betting hand on the flop for most of the same reasons that eight seven or nine eight would be. Um, I also think king jack is uh, is a pretty reasonable betting hand on the flop, especially with a backdoor flush draw. So I think the hero actually can have quite a few better straight draws on the turn than this one. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that this one is bad, but um, I mean, it reduces the value of betting with this one. And the fact that even if you hit your straight on the river, your opponent will have to consider that you might have King Jack. And so your implied odds are a little bit less good when you get there. Um, I, I mean, a part of why I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the turn in rivers, I don't have strong opinions about them. Like you have an extremely weak hand with a little bit of equity. Uh, I guess I do feel like you should definitely bet the river. Like once you bet the turn, I think the ace is a good enough card for your range, and and your hand is so weak in absolute terms, you're not really blocking any of what you want your opponent to fold. I think you probably should bluff the river. Uh, in terms of sizing, now I don't think it really makes sense to say like, well, I can't. I I, I, do, I feel like I can't bet big with my bluff because I couldn't bet big with my value hands because I wouldn't have a target. Um, like I feel like there's some implicit assumptions about, like exploitative assumptions about how the villain is going to play, which would be fine, but you, you can follow through on that with exploitative bet sizing. Like if you believe that your opponent just isn't going to call a large bet unless he has a set, then you would want to make a large bet when you have uh, a bluff and not make a large bet when you have a value hand. If you're trying to play in a balanced way, then like the fact that you have a range advantage here um, and also have a fair number of bluffs available to you means that your opponent's going to have incentive even to call large bets with bluff catchery kinds of hands. And in fact, that you're going to need to make large bets in order to give him a difficult decision. Um, I think we do have a pretty substantial range advantage here. I don't think the villain is really that likely to show up with um, King Jack, let alone uh, aces or, or queens. I could actually even see it going all in on the river, just batting 248 into a pot of 144. It's about 2x pot. Um, you know, that's really not that unreasonable of a river bet size, and we do have a quite substantial range advantage here. Um, given that the hero is betting with a, we- a hand that's so weak in absolute terms, I do think that you know, even if you're going to have a large uh, river betting size, it doesn't have to be your only bet size, and uh, a hand like 8 high will probably slot better into a small um, a small betting region. And for your bluffs, when you're using a larger bet size, you're often going to want to have some kind of blocker, which 8-7 does not. So I don't really have strong feelings on this, but I wouldn't take a large bluff off the table. Um, I do think you know, betting on 100 hours with this hand is fine. I'm kind of ambivalent about the, the turn bluff. And as I said, I think really the most interesting part of the hand is the part that uh, goes unexamined by Ryan, which is the choice to make a $25 bet on the flop. 
Thanks for writing, Ryan. Thanks to the rest of you for listening. If you have a hand you would like to hear discussed on the show, uh, you can submit it to podcast at thinkingpoker.net, or if you're one of our Patreon supporters, uh, you can submit the hand uh, to the Thinking Poker Daily podcast, and there's a much higher, like, we get a lot of hands for the um, for the regular show, many of which don't make it to air, so your odds of uh, hearing your question answered are much higher um, if you are a Patreon supporter who's submitting it to the strategy-focused show. Uh, and that, again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. You can also, in this feed, uh, last week, instead of putting out a regular show, um, we put out a free preview of the Thinking Poker Daily show. So if you're curious what it sounds like, you can uh, check that out. Go to thinkingpoker.net and uh, you can find the episode there. It's called uh, Thinking Poker Daily Preview or something along those lines. Um, Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, so three and a half years ago would have been right before my son was born. So now up to two kids, uh, uh, Lillian, who's six, and Liam, who is uh, uh, coming up on four. Uh, and then the, uh, I guess, big news professionally for me is the last four years I've been at Stripe, working uh, first on Stripe Atlas and then in a uh, succession of roles with uh, uh, largely our marketing and communications focus. Yeah. Yeah. And I also have a kid who's been born, you know, like like very, very roughly the age of your youngest. Um, I think a lot of people listening to this will have read your recent essay on working at Stripe, you know, and, and saying, and, and will have done the calculation, you know, if something doubles every year, then in three and a half years, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot, you know, maybe what, you know, 14 times as large as it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah pretty big you know what's it what's it like working I love, in i do love making the joke with people who come from startup dumb that the easiest way to visualize 10 percent compounded month over month growth is to have a small child uh, but yeah. they eventually <laughs> tail off and uh, that isn't necessarily given for startups at least not in the first couple of years um so what's it like working at stripe who uh lots and lots of thoughts and i wasn't necessarily pre-cashed with them while trying to remember what poker was wow um so it's been really a great experience in a lot of ways. I work with a, a succession of very smart and compassionate teams on uh, hard problems that seem to make a difference for people. So uh, all of that is something I like a lot. Um, prior to Stripe, uh, those of you who heard their earlier podcast might know this, uh, but prior to Stripe, I ran a succession of small software companies for about 10 years. And uh, one of the interesting things about having a job is you have a boss and the boss has the sort of like managerial questions on, hey, what it is that you want to get out of this career, et cetera, et cetera. And when you are the boss, there is no one to ask you that question. And so uh, every year when I was running my business, my sort of goal for the next year and goal over the medium to long term was just, I don't know, I'm running a business. If I make the business more successful, I guess that's career success, right? Like what else do you do? Um, But uh, with having a boss, it made me I think a little bit more uh, deeper about my values, what I want to get accomplished over like a 40-year time span, not like a 40-week time span. And uh, the thing I came up with is uh, just uh, achieve the the largest median impact for the largest possible number of software people. And uh, so I've been 
working for that uh, diligently uh, while positioned at Stripe, and I intend to be uh, largely working towards that North Star for the rest of my career. Nice. Um, a lot of our listeners are poker players, either professionally or seriously, but non-professionally. And <laughs> two things you've talked about are managing yourself and compounding growth. And um, our listeners, if they aren't thinking about compounding growth uh, as poker players, um, they really ought to be, both in the bankroll sense and in the personal development sense. But it's really, really hard to know where your weaknesses are and, and like how to build your human capital as a poker player. Like, what have you learned? What have you learned that that might be transferable to poker for for our listeners who are sitting around not knowing where their leaks are, not knowing how to how to really improve themselves over the long term. I promise I will take this to an actual poker-related topic in the next couple of minutes, but I will yeah, give you the it's one a long thing that... It's a long-form show. To take, to take whatever path you like, to your point. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, uh, I haven't really talked about this super publicly yet, but um, uh, we're recording this in late 2020. 2020 has been a year for a lot of people. Uh, the uh, combination of... Uh, uh, health issues, the um, uh, the pandemic affecting our lives personally in Japan, the pandemic affecting my family in the United States, uh, work-related stress, et cetera, et cetera, all came to a head uh, during the summer. And uh, while I have quietly struggled for depression for much of my adult life, it got much much past the uh, quietly struggling port, uh, point to the uh, uh, profound disabling episode point. Uh, and uh, since then, have uh, started therapy, medication, and uh, restarted exercise after a five-year hiatus. And so the single biggest thing that is probably a leak in your poker game right now, if you are not healthy, is getting and staying healthy. Hmm. Uh, so uh, go figure. The, uh, the gym rats who had been nagging me all my life to uh, exercise in a more consistent fashion, uh, they were totally right. Uh, every time they said that, and probably more times they didn't. And so uh, uh, the one of the single best things you can do is to uh, keep yourself at uh, uh, sort of the, the top of your performance range and or expand your performance range. And that will have knock-on effects for basically every physical and or intellectually demanding career. And having played poker casually, um, a long poker session is both physically and intellectually demanding. So I would highly recommend that. Uh, for obvious reasons, I haven't been around a table since uh, having the new improved exercise plan, but uh, uh, hopefully one of these days. Yeah, you'll play better. You'll play better, I promise. And uh, so first, thanks very much for sharing that. And second, I'm you know truly and honestly sorry to hear you're, you're having these problems and very, very glad to hear that you're getting help for them. Um, please never hesitate to reach out if I can be at all useful to you um, in any way. Um, a lot of people have talked on this show about mental health issues. One thing that's striking to me is that people have very different views about what the right approach is. Some people really don't like um, people, some people really don't like therapists. Uh, some people really love working out and not doing anything else. Some people think that working out. I mean, I guess we haven't had anyone who said that they started working out and they don't recommend it. <laughs> that seems to be maybe one point that everyone uh, has in common. It, it seems to me that even after one has established that mental health 
should be a priority and, and that there might be a problem there, that there's still work to do about, um, you know, how to address it. You know, do you, do you have any advice for people who, who think that they need, yeah, you know, you're not a doctor, I'm not a doctor, this isn't medical advice, but for people who are, you know, personally trying to explore the solution space for mental health issues, um, do you have any advice to them as to how to do that? Yeah, I think there's a, goodness, there are any number of uh, discourses around mental health that make it uh, harder for people to, um, I don't want to say admit you have a problem, because even that is part of the reason why people find it difficult to uh, to tap things that would improve their lives here. Uh, I live in Japan. Japan has an incredibly stigmatizing relationship with mental health issues. The One of the issues with uh, getting uh, health care for the last uh, 15 years that I've been living here has been that um, uh, the sort of sociocultural conception of depression in Japan is that uh, it's a disease which is so severe that it would prevent a salary man from doing his work. And so since I was able to like show up to work every day and give some impression of being productive, then I couldn't have had, uh, you know, a, a medically relevant level of that disease. Um, uh, I do personally think that I find the disease framing easier to think about depression than a sort of like a quote-unquote disorder or a... Uh, uh, other things that you could uh, conceptualize it as. I think it, you know, um, like you don't have to feel guilty that you get a cold one day. And I uh, try to feel like, you know, the state of being in, being depressed is not me failing to properly manage my emotional state. It's just this, you know, whatever the underlying structural thing is, I don't really know, don't really care. Hormonal, yada, yada. It's just, just a thing that I'm working through uh, and uh, uh, attempting to make the uh, the best positive expected value play is given that I have this thing that I'm working through. The uh, other thing I would think is that I'd encourage you to think of it this way. You know, you don't have to have, quote-unquote, a problem to benefit from um, seeing a therapist on a regular basis, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One of a, uh, like The day-to-day experience of managing my mood and energy levels has been uh, radically improved mostly by the medication, uh, but I continue seeing a therapist on a weekly basis, and he asked me at one point early in the relationship just to level set. Um, so, you know, if your mood and energy levels are well controlled by medication, why are you paying out of pocket to see a therapist every week? And I told him, well, two things. Number one, I don't know what I don't know, and two, I feel sort of guilty uh, doing morale management with say, my boss or my wife on a weekly basis, but since I'm paying you, you're stuck with me. <laughs> and uh, just sort of use them as a sounding board slash coach for things that are um, awkward to talk about with other people or that other people might not have the, uh, uh, the sort of right viewpoint on private parts of your life or uh, the right incentive structure to help you through. Uh, like One of the things is, uh, you know, I think managers are... And coworkers broadly, but managers specifically are often uh, doing an unsung amount of uh, uh, mental slash emotional labor with regards to their employees. Uh, and those of you who have been managers will understand what I'm saying there. But uh, <laughs> I, I have the, been, and I do. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, like there, it is a little awkward as an employee um, 
uh, kind of accessing that from a person who is also the person who is, you know, uh, doing your performance reviews. And maybe you need to vent, but venting would cause someone to uh, <laughs> reevaluate whether you were a team player with respect to uh, to uh, enthusiastically responding to re requests from colleagues. And so since it is difficult to talk about, you know, relatively private work situations uh, with uh, uh, with people who don't have a professional cone of silence around your conversations, a uh, you know, uh, mental health professional is a good person to say, all right, let me tell you about the inner workings of the internet economy and uh, every frustration I've had while attempting to build them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, uh, that's part of it. Uh, and to be clear, not, uh, not subtweeting anyone in specific uh, work is stressful because work is stressful. That's sort of the, the nature of the beast when you're doing ambitious things. But uh, uh, good to be, have another outlet for those kind of stresses. Can I ask, Patrick, what was your uh, process for finding uh, a, a therapist? I mean, it sounds like you have someone that you, you are happy with. Sure. So um, I actually am on therapist number two. Uh, therapist number one uh, will avoid any identifying information, but our last uh, hour-long session was an hour of him subjecting me to uh, QAnon conspiracy theories and me saying, hey, um, I'm not that politically involved at the moment. Can we get back to the topic of my depression? Wow. Uh, and uh, then... Uh, uh, I would say fired, but fired is not the right word because fired suggests that he has any reason to see me the following week. I elected not to schedule sessions after that point. Um, uh, the uh, current therapist, um, so one of the things that I, I realized when uh, working with uh, therapist number one was that um, a lot of the stuff that I tend to talk about on a uh, uh, during my sessions is uh, it falls into one of two buckets, either uh, things in my family life or things in my work life uh, because uh, between my family life and my work life that basically consumes all of my waking hours these days uh, and while many therapists have the experience of working through people roughly similar to me with roughly similar you know uh, family structures etc uh, the uh, sort of senior employee at a high growth Silicon Valley company is a relatively unique professional experience and um, it uh, it rhymes with other sort of you know high stakes high stress careers like uh, I don't know being a partner at a law firm etc and you can find therapists who are working with partners of law firms everywhere in the United States uh, or elsewhere um, but I thought you know it would be really good if um, when I was uh, explaining to someone that I was coming up on a you know uh, discussion with my manager about uh, option grants, for uh, for example, that I didn't have to spend five minutes walking them through. Okay, I'm going to throw out a bunch of words now. Here's what vesting means. Yada yada yada. Um, and so I, uh, I thought, well, who who are the most likely therapists to have a client that looks kind of like me? They're the folks that are practicing in San Francisco. And so I started googling for um, you know San Francisco mental health therapists I basically uh, contacted one and said hey this is going to sound a little weird but uh, uh, I'm actually in Tokyo uh, but you are probably professionally relevant to my interests and it says on your uh, website that uh, you uh, make sort of a specialty of working with uh, men in the tech industry of which I am one so uh, let's let's try that and uh, uh, they said well I'm willing to give that a try for one session and see if the uh, 
literal internet bandwidth between us is good enough to uh, uh, to do a uh, you know, Skype, uh, et cetera, call, and it was. So I have been continuing that uh, pretty successfully for the last couple of months. Have you? Um, do you have experience doing in-person um, therapy to like compare it to uh, doing online, or have you only done by Skype? Uh, so therapist number one was an in-person therapist, uh, but but there there were uh, it sounds for, like confounding reasons, variables uh, there. Let's yep. Uh, let's move on directly <laughs> from discussing them. Fair enough. I, I have a bunch of questions, but I don't want to... If you have anything to ask, Andrew, you should. No, go ahead. I, I just was just curious about that. Uh. Yeah. Um, I, I'm. Can, can I change gears a little bit? Um, sure. uh, Twitter and you seem to go together really well, and the last time we talked, I introduced you as a major public intellectual, and I still believe you're a major public intellectual, but um, less of your work is long-form essays, and uh, more of it is, you know, long form tweeting, and I, I'm, I, I think more of your creative output is happening on Twitter uh, than it was three and a half years ago. And I also think that you have sort of maybe more raw creative output. At least I feel like you're you're just 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 spewing tons of amazing ideas into the world um i don't know whether it's so i I have some conjectures about this one is that i'm mistaken and i'm just consuming it differently two is that something about twitter has changed maybe the 280 character limit maybe something about uh you know something about twitter and, and the part of twitter that you operate in is different third is that there's this uh group of people who talk to each other who write about broadly adjacent things i'm thinking you matt levine burn hobart some other people and there's this sort of seniors thing happening where where you're all just incredibly productive together um and i'm sure there are other explanations that I'm not thinking of. So, so what's going on with you and your incredible creative output on Twitter over the last year? Sure. Uh, so, I think it's a it's a very interesting sort of. Uh, we don't see each other's soul cards with respect to this topic, uh, and uh, uh, poker analogies that uh, they they are such a rich metaphor for. Poker metaphor is a rich metaphor for working through life. Yeah. Um, so before talking about Twitter specifically, let me talk a little bit about being a public intellectual. And, and that's something that I've sort of low-key considered as part of my professional output for the last, uh, let's see, it's 2020 now. I've, I've explicitly thought that I was a public intellectual since at least 2010. Uh, but every public intellectual has uh, both, you know, that... Uh, publicly visible part of their output. And then they also typically have um, some sort of economic engine, which allows them to continue existing in the world, whether that is playing poker or teaching at a university or uh, selling books, or in my case, running a software company The uh, for much of my career and now working at a software company. The interesting thing about um, uh, my output as a public intellectual is that uh, uh, prior to about 2015-ish, the um, uh, the software companies I were running were, I would say, relatively unambitious compared to the universe of software companies. And so a supermajority of my creative and intellectual energy was sort of um, available as surplus. 
And so I kind of poured that onto the internet uh, and into my uh, blogging, delivering conference talks, et cetera, et cetera. And so a relatively high percentage of my total productive output in a year um, was available for free uh, if you knew where to look for it on Hacker News and Twitter and my blog. And then uh, when I worked at Starfighter in like the 2015-2016 era, uh, uh, almost all of my creative output went into building Starfighter, which unfortunately, since Starfighter didn't end up succeeding, um, most of that was not seen by the broader internet. Uh, but, oh man, was I paddling like crazy under the waterline for those two years. Hey, I had a great time, okay? I had a great time with Starfighter. Thank you. But I, Go ahead. I really had a great time with Starfighter as well. <laughs> Aside from the fact of like plowing it into plowing it into a mountain, um, from product wise, it's the best work I've ever uh, done in terms of building something people loved. Uh, and uh, oh man, I learned so much in the course of two years on uh, both the business side of things and the uh, you know the, the microstructure of trading operations. A fun topic to get to uh, work in, and it's a really weird one to get to work in when you're not actually in the finance industry. Um, <laughs> many fun lessons were learned. Anyhow, uh, so. Uh, I work at Stripe right now, and uh, there is some sort of negotiation with work on what of my work happens within the company and what of my work is uh, sustaining this public intellectual uh, that I am. Uh, and uh, I like, clearly I spend a lot of time on Twitter, right? And there is a uh, uh, there is a sort of mutual expectation between myself and my boss and myself and the wider organization on um, you know X percent of my cycles are spent on uh, like just working for the internet directly, uh, where uh, you know, I don't necessarily have to have 100% of the threads about making software companies better. But as long as I'm continuing to, you know, uh, uh, ring the bells about uh, charging more uh, and uh, helping people through the mechanics of uh, starting and scaling internet businesses, uh, the nice part is that uh, Stripe is you could sort of conceptualize it as an index fund on the success of all internet businesses. And so to the extent that I'm making like any material subset of internet businesses better, uh, Stripe pretty directly benefits from that. Um, but there are also things that I do that uh, either don't directly show up on the internet or they do directly show up on the internet, but they don't have my name attached to them. Uh, for example, you know, currently I'm working on the marketing team at Stripe. And so uh, like marketing doesn't just happen. <laughs> there are, you know, web pages and meetings and brand strategy sessions and all that sort of thing. I contribute relatively a lot to those. Uh, and so um, that absorbs a portion of my creative energy, uh, but um, less of the creative energy than being the, the CEO of Starfighter did for two years. CEO slash chief bottle washer slash, um, you know, I was literally building a stock exchange at the time. Um, still low-key amazes me that we got all that done. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, so, one of the reasons that you just see more of me on Twitter is uh, because uh, relatively more of my cycles are going into the public intellectual bucket these days. Uh, one reason, and I don't love this so much, is that Twitter has uh, sort of cannibalized some of my other outlets, which uh, I like certain aspects of those other outlets. Uh, for example, I don't write on Hacker News nearly as much as I, I did previously. Uh, and. I think subjectively that's just because um, a lot of the Hacker News conversations are less um, less interesting to where I am in 2020 than they were to me in 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, you know, I've uh, 
grown in my skill set and my interests have changed a little bit and I've started to diverge from the uh, prevailing like skill level on Hacker News and the prevailing uh, interest set on Hacker News. Um, uh, so, And that's one reason you see me being more of a uh, internet buddy to the Matt Levines and uh, Bern Hobart of the world as I start thinking like more through uh, finance-oriented topics than the um, non-business sides of the software industry, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, one reason is that Twitter is just extremely pathologically engaging as an application. And while I don't get drawn into uh, uh, Twitter drama as much as many heavy Twitter users do, uh, it does have a strong hold on my psyche. And so I keep opening up the app, uh, even at times where I probably shouldn't. Um, And uh, uh, Twitter also consumes a lot of my blogging output. Uh, Work also sort of uses the same cycles as doing long-form writing for me. because I'm often doing long-form writing for work, either writing that will be attributed to me or writing that won't. But uh, uh, like tweet storms aren't free in terms of thinking. Uh, they don't take as much writing effort from me as writing a 10,000-word essay. Uh, but uh, an interesting thing about intellectual work is that um, like it's not, you know, it's not moving x pounds of rocks across, you know, y feet of distance. Uh, they're uh, some cycles that are not directly comparable like really do substitute for each other in terms of uh, what they take out of you. And so, uh, like, thinking deeply on, I don't know, the current state of the banking industry and then externalizing some of those thoughts to Twitter uh, takes a lot of the same intellectual effort that writing a, um, you know, well, doing the same amount of thinking and then figuring out how to write that into a long-form article would take. Uh, and so the... Uh, upswing in my usage of Twitter has caused a, a mechanical downswing in my um, uh, writing for the blog. I sort of regret that because uh, I think, oh, I called it a blog. Shoot, I've resolved never to call it a blog again. My collection <laughs> of essays that exists at www.calzumius.com. Um, you probably know what I'm saying here, but for the benefit of people who don't know this in joke, uh, the uh, I think that creators choose suboptimal framings for the things that they do. And those suboptimal framings cause the audience for the things they do and other audiences that are relevant to your life to um, downgrade their estimate of the value of the things that you do. And so uh, when you say, I'm a blogger, oh, oh, let's say, I'm a part-time blogger who lives in the middle of Japan and writes on software topics. uh, that causes people to have one estimation of the amount of value that you're adding to the world. And that estimation will typically be not all that much. An equally true thing to say is, I'm one of the Internet's leading experts with respect to topics X, Y, Z. And you can fill in the X, Y, Z for me. Uh, and my advice and counsel is sought by people who really know what they're doing. Um, and uh, since over the course of the next 30 years of the career, I want to be read more as the second than as the first. Uh, I want to be deliberate around how I describe my output to other people. And thus, won't call it a blog post, we'll call it an essay. Mm-hmm. Serious people write essays, and serious people write you know, white papers and other things. Um, uh, so, uh, thinking uh, through that sort of thing. Um, I do think that... Uh, The nature of intellectual work is that it largely happens in groups to a degree which is um, understated. And so uh, joining the right uh, right group, both as a sort of microstructure and macrostructure level, is extremely conducive to be more productive. Uh, So 
I find myself embedded in a group at Stripe, uh, and the kind of water cooler conversations there uh, improve the, uh, the level of discourse going around in my head that gets reflected in my uh, public writing versus, uh, you know, being uh, uh, doing most of my work from a cafe where I knew nobody, nobody for uh, and got all of my socialization on the internet, which was true for much of the 10 years prior to that. The uh, uh, the other thing is that uh, there is this sort of like ecosystemic factor where people are playing off each other, bouncing ideas off each other. Um, the metaphor I, I always come back to is like the Parisian salon, except those salons now exist remotely over the internet, and so um, there there very much is that tribe of like you know software adjacent people who also have a financially oriented lens on things. Where I would consider myself a me- member. Um, Matt Levine is a member, although he comes more from the finance background and the software background, Ben Thompson, Bern Hobart, et cetera, et cetera. Um, please fill in the blank with the least famous um, um, true answer. Uh, you read every word that blank writes. Ooh. Ooh, that is an excellent question. Uh find myself having very conventional tastes at the moment and want to broaden that. The, uh, um, one person who more of your listeners should be reading if you read Matt Levine is the, uh, uh, it's the guy who writes on Substack about banking, just banking. And I'm blanking on his name at the moment, uh, but uh, we'll uh, give it to you after the episode, and you can link it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of, uh, wow, there's an entire interesting discussion to be had on how uh, the, like, one of the, one of the nice things about being in this sort of salon-esque environment is that uh, because people interlink to each other and introduce uh, uh, the, uh, the. Uh, up-and-coming intellectuals because they want to get hipster cred if, like, I was in on the ground floor of this guy. Uh, that uh, uh, that increases their uh, those people's uh, visibility to the rest of the ecosystem and causes them to get a leg up versus having to uh, sort of claw their own audience out of the ether. <clears throat> Good. Thanks. Um, I'm obsessed with intellectual... Mark Rubenstein. Com- that's it. Uh, that's it, yeah. Just remember. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Mark Rubenstein. Um, I'm obsessed with intellectual compounding, and uh, there's this funny thing where if I consume more and more of, of a like thing, you know, words by the same author, books of the same kind, books on the same subject, I don't know whether there's this like network effect thing happening, and I'm learning more and more and more. Um, here, think of Tyler Cowen saying that he got more from the 41st book he read about tennis than any of the first 40 because he had so much more to think about. And I think that works for authors too. Um, I, I, I don't know, but then there's also like the conventional point about diminishing returns. Like, you know, after you've read everything somebody has to write, like, you know, maybe, maybe they're just saying the same things over and over again. And I really don't know how to manage that. I, I believe in the compounding returns thing, um, especially because if that hypothesis is true, then it's really, really powerful to read lots of the same kind of stuff. Um, 
So I take a fairly extreme T-shaped approach. I read basically every word a handful of people write. You're one of them. Um, And then I also try to be extremely, extremely diverse in the other stuff I read. And I, I finance that by cutting out the middle, <laughs> you know, so I try to, uh, you know, drink, drink a teaspoon of a lot of stuff and, and as much as possible of, you know, from a few sources. Um, wh- where am I going wrong? Is that, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? How, how do you think about all that? I think that sounds like approximately the right strategy to me. And the, um, the way I conceptualize it is... I'm going to use Matt Levine, um, not because he is the best best author in the world, but uh, uh, because he is uh, uh, both a great author and someone who has exposed me to things that, um, ways of seeing the world that I would not have had, but for reading a uh, huge amount of his prodigious output. Mm-hmm. What would you pay as someone who is, you know, going about your job? Uh, whether that is playing poker or working in the software industry, et cetera, to have Matt Levine sitting uh, on your shoulder and available for consultation with regards to any decisions you could possibly have. Um, The amount I would pay for that is kind of staggering. Uh, And the next best thing to having actual miniaturized Matt Levine sitting on your shoulder is to have a mental model of Matt Levine that is sufficiently high fidelity that you can summon it and say, Matt Levine, what would you say about this particular topic? Whether that is like, you know, should I go all in with kings or um, uh, a thing that comes up so much in my conversations recently is the securitization of SaaS revenue. And I kind of feel like Matt Levine would clearly have a lot of, a lot to say on the securitization of SaaS revenue. And I think I, I know 90% of it, what it would be. If I don't explicitly ask the Matt Levine sitting on my shoulder, uh, I will not get the answer for it. So uh, I make it a point to explicitly ask with regards to like things I'm writing or uh, problems that I'm trying to think think through. What would Matt Levine would say about this? What would Tyler Cohen say about this? What would Byrne say about this? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, times the number of authors that you have that are, uh, you feel like you have a sufficiently high fidelity mental model to uh, accurately construct what they would say. Uh, and an interesting thing for me from seeing like my productivity in the world is that a huge amount of my productivity is not anything that I do. It is successfully allowing people to install a patio 11 on their shoulder uh, because uh, like I've seen this work for people and it's been outstanding, uh, in, uh, outstanding slash a little bit mind boggling to me. Like uh, I have, you know, sort of um, been the fly on the wall in conversations other people were having where software entrepreneur A said, what should I do about my pricing grid? And software entrepreneur B said, Patio 11 would tell you to increase your prices, which number one, that prediction is absolutely accurate. Two, I didn't have to actually say it. They like sort of both borrowed the relatively low level of intellectual content from my work, but also borrowed my social authority to give advice. And um, with respect to this entrepreneur that uh, they had a relationship with. And uh, in sort of giving Entrepreneur B the ability to say that, that created value while I was sleeping. Uh, and that sort of thing is extremely powerful, uh, both from like uh, the perspective of seeing my productivity and also from the perspective of like things Entrepreneur B did that day that they wouldn't have been able to do but for having a relatively well-developed mental model of me. Granted, you don't need a very highly uh, developed mental model of me to know that I will say charge more in virtually every circumstance. But yeah, 
Yeah, you. Yeah, I. I I, I know you read the story once. You 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 may have forgotten it, but this this definitely works uh, inter interpersonally. Also, um, I, I was once in a conversation with somebody who started talking about a small, uh, boring seeming software business, and he started to say like, "Nate, Nate, Nate, you, see, you have to understand this sounds boring, but actually there's a business here, you know. So it seems like this is just like a niche thing, but actually." And I said like, "Look, Mr. X, like I." Do, do you know who Patrick McKenzie is? And and, and he said yes. And I said I, I read him too. I understand. We can we can talk about real things now. You don't have to you don't have to convince me that the world of software is big and that niche things can can be you know big and, and valuable businesses. We can we can just keep on going. And then we did. We managed to have a real conversation much more efficiently than we could have had we not had uh, that that way of talking about it. With had had I not had that signal yeah, broke the shibboleth no. slash. Uh slash like secret knock at the door knock you know tap out patio 11 in morse code and you can immediately assume uh, certain things about somebody's uh, uh viewpoint on the world slash uh, interests in software yeah. uh, i'm i'm a little bit wilded wilded out by that uh, but, but i've gotten a little used to it over the course of, of 10 years uh, it's it's i don't know personally it's extremely gratifying to see i want to uh keep a sense of proportion about it hopefully you know i accomplish much more in the next 30 years than I have in the last 10, but uh, uh, thank you for telling me. <laughs> yeah, um, but my, so this is actually a poker podcast. Um, so one interesting thing about applying what you just said to poker is that I think it's really useful to have different poker players on your shoulder. And it, you know, as long as you don't use it as an excuse to make terrible plays because one of your personas told you the thing that you want to do but know you, that you shouldn't do. That's a separate issue. I, I, in my career, have found it very useful to to have different frameworks available to me for thinking about decisions as they come up. Um, one paradoxical thing that I think is more true in poker than in other areas, maybe not, um, is that the more obvious the the more a person or a persona makes a certain kind of very obvious mistake but is successful anyway, um, the more you should study how that person is thinking because like they're still winning. Yes, maybe they're getting lucky, but you know, if there's this huge leak in their game, but still they're doing great, like probably what they're doing well, they're doing really, really, really well. And having that sort of unbalanced, but really powerful avatar in your sort of mental stack, um, really valuable. Uh, (laughs) Is that, you know, is that, do, do you take that to other parts of life also? Like, is that, is there some reason that that would be a better strategy in poker than elsewhere, or or should you sort of seek out people making obvious mistakes who are successful anyway um, um, elsewhere in the world? So I think that resonates with me. Um, I would uh, caution people that um, like one potential set of ground truths which would cause the observation this person is really successful despite making obvious mistakes is that. Um, they're not factually making mistakes. Uh, and I think that uh, this is me giving advice to poker players who are probably better than me at the game of poker. Um, uh, there uh, is a chance that if you think that a super successful poker player who plays several levels above you uh, has an obvious leak in their game, that you are simply reading the facts of the matter wrong. Maybe you are uh, only seeing a a uh, relatively small sample of their hands because they are the uh, sort of like shocker hands that appear in poker media. Um, maybe you are um, uh, you don't understand the totality of uh, like 
you know, you might be able to see their hold cards, but you can't see, for example, what their uh, staking was, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can't uh, uh, do the uh, full um, uh, analysis of the implied economics at play. Uh, maybe you, uh, and I think this is increasingly true in poker, and it's fascinating to me, maybe you don't understand the actual game being played. Um, I think there are a number of poker professionals who are, uh, like, fundamentally, if you're a poker professional, you are an entertainment service provider. Uh, and there is a variety of ways to um, monetize the provision of entertainment services. Um, many poker professionals monetize it by uh, taking winnings off the table. But uh, there are some entertainment service professionals who, for example, have uh, merchandising or streaming or et cetera, et cetera, contracts going on. And uh, uh, it is, um, again, as someone who is a casual player and who uh, spends very little time talking to people about the actual uh, economics of this, but has a pretty good uh, uh, ability to range set on what internet economics look out look like. Um, I think there are likely some professional poker players who are break-even or losing money on the actual playing of poker, but doing quite well on their business nonetheless due to uh, other economic factors at play. Uh, and so, uh, you know, evaluating that person with respect to um, are they making the correct poker decisions is not necessarily correctly evaluating the game they're playing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think poke. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. I was gonna say there's there's an interesting uh, example of this that apparently comes up sometimes in um, in in super high roller events. You know, when people are playing these tournaments with uh, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollar buy-ins. You know, very few of these players have one hundred percent of themselves. Um, some of them are financing by swapping percentages with other players. Uh, some are getting staked by um, people who are not as good at poker as they are because very few people are. And um, if you want to continue playing in these events, one thing that you may need to avoid is doing something that is going to look like a spew to the person who is staking you. Um, and, and so my understanding is that there are certain people who are kind of constrained from uh, you know, making a, a, a you know, very big call or a very big bluff or just you know, something that if it were to go wrong, even if it were a play that had a positive expectation, if it were to go wrong, it might be something that you know, could, could cause a fickle financier to decide not to put you into a future one of these events. And um, just you know, the example of a meta consideration that came to mind when you were uh, talking in, in that regard. Um, I also think that, and oh boy, uh, I think it would be, maybe I should write about this at some point for the more generalist audience that doesn't follow poker, because the uh, the economics of this mirror um, uh, sort of startup investing in capital stacks in some ways. Uh, like one of the considerations that you could theoretically have is, um, you mentioned a branding consideration with respect to uh, a high sophistication, probably low number of relative people staking you. You could also imagine being staked via some sort of platform by a larger number of relatively low sophistication pokers, uh, poker players who are less making an investment decision and more uh, uh, making you know, an entertainment purchase. And in that world, you might be incentivized to sort of like amp up the branding of your plays and uh, maybe not maximize for uh, expected value directly. Uh, so, for example, if you had a brand of like, oh, sometimes I just go wild, <laughs> then uh, maybe, you know, you could like get it all in on a hand where 
you're 10% behind, but it'll make a great story either way, right? Um, uh, or, like, if I lose this hand, it you know, like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not shoving for the equity in the hand, I'm shoving for the equity on YouTube, uh, is, like, a very real consideration if you have a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of those uh, people... And that, by the way, is the thing that... Uh, if I could take this away from poker for a second, this totally happens in real investing too. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, investors who, uh, because they have stakeholders who are not the companies that they are directly investing in, uh, will do things like, I'm going to pay um, a price which I don't think is directly rational uh, to uh, get in on a later round of a hot startup so that I can represent to future uh, uh partners in the investment firm or future companies oh yeah you know i was in on big name here yeah that makes sense to me i was um, i was also thinking Nate, in, in answer to your question about the um the, the poker player who's making obvious mistakes and, and what are they doing right and i imagine this has uh, some applicability outside of poker as well but you know sometimes that person just has a phone in his lap uh telling him what his opponent's cards are and it you know it, yeah. <laughs> I, I think you know, even more so in, in trying to broaden that to something outside of poker where there are a lot more variables that you may not see, uh, it, you know, it's also important to consider, like, perhaps this person is succeeding um, d- despite their mistakes because of other advantages that they have that are not uh, not a matter of them playing skillfully as much as, you know, having having something else outside of the game going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I only follow the, the news casually, but uh, the, uh, the news which we are apparently uh, are probably <laughs> I'm, I'm not discussing any specific incident. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Wild, wild stuff. Um, <laughs> what has your own uh, poker playing look like? I mean, have, have you uh, played at all, or did you just you know stop with the pandemic going on? So I haven't been in a live room since the pandemic started mm-hmm. for the obvious reasons. Uh, the uh, uh, I um, so I often play poker as stress relief, but the more stressed I get, the worse I do. And uh, the uh, I very intentionally like poker is strictly rec- recreational for me. It will never move a financial needle, uh, but uh, uh, like losing can't actually impact my real bankroll, but uh, it impacting my poker bankroll uh, makes me feel bad. And so uh, when I was going through the depressive episode, I I played uh, more poker than I usually do, uh, relatively poorly. And uh, after a while, I was like, yeah, maybe I should cut down on that until I'm in a better place in life. Um, right prior to the pandemic starting, I uh, went home for my uh, usual. I visit to the United States in December uh, to see family, et cetera, et cetera, and got out to a couple of tournaments in the Chicago area and uh, had a uh, a good run of it, both for in the run good sense of the term and in, uh, I played uh, excellent disciplined poker for a number of hours and uh, uh, won my uh, two consecutive uh, first place gashes, which uh, oh, hasn't happened to me all that much. So, um, and this is, you know, a... Uh, to give folks a rough approximation in 50 to $100 buy-in tournament, etc. Uh, so I'm not exactly rolling in it relative to uh, to working in the software industry, but uh, I, I felt good. Congratulations. Congratulations. Oh, did, did anyone recognize you at the tables? 
uh, <laughs> nobody recognized me at the table. The uh, uh, the place that I go to is the um, uh, what's it called Horseshoe Hammond, uh, which is uh, within a lift drive of Chicago. Uh, but the clientele at the Horseshoe Hammond, uh, relatively few of them are uh, uh, people who work in the software industry. More, you know, older folks, retirees, uh, uh, general uh, folks living in the Chicago slash uh, uh, Indianish region, and so. Uh, 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 there were a, uh, a bunch of folks uh, a little bit confused that uh, uh, somebody in my age range, et cetera, would be at the table. <laughs> uh, underrated poker market, Chicago. It's uh, it's a great place to play cards, I think, and you know, both that card room and, and just generally. Mm-hmm. I, I started playing uh, poker in that. Chicago, but it was before I was old enough. So, I mean, I, was, I, I went to the University of Chicago, which is where I started playing, but uh, I, I was never old enough to uh, go to the casinos. I mean, I guess I, I knew people who were going with fake IDs, but I was not one of them. So despite starting my poker career in Chicago, I have never actually played in a Chicagoland casino. So if I can give people a bit of market intelligence, which might be useful to some of your listeners over the course of the next couple of years, um, Japan is uh, gradually going down the path of legalizing onshore casinos, uh, which is going to result in a few casinos made in uh uh, likely the Osaka region, possibly others as well. Uh, and uh, they will have poker tables. Uh, I actually have walked past a school in Tokyo that is teaching people how to be uh, poker dealers, which is an interesting school to have in a country where poker is technically illegal at the moment. <laughs> um, but, you know, like this legalization of crea- uh, casinos creates a demand for those sort of jobs, right? And you can't exactly uh, pick up professional poker dealing on the side. Um, so, uh, to sort of cold start for a country that has no qualified poker deals at the uh, dealers at the moment, they are getting trained at a you know professional uh, yeah. professional you know for profit education place. Anyhow, um, when those places open up in Osaka, um, I would predict those are going to be extremely soft games. Yeah. So, if you want to come to Japan for like personal reasons, you know, see the country, et cetera, et cetera, and then. Uh, do relatively well for yourself against opponents who have literally never had the opportunity to be in a legal poker game in their lives, uh, but might have bankrolls that do not suggest that the first thing is true. Uh, <laughs> it would be a wonderful time to visit Osaka. Yeah, and and with good dealers too. Like my my sense of, um, I mean, this is very reductive, but there, you know, you you've written about the Japanese, uh, you know, sort of. Uh, the culture of work and 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 craft um and one thing i talk about on the show a lot is how important it is to have a mechanically correct uh dealer and to do all that in in with what i imagine will be very well-trained dealers <laughs> who who do not roll the deck uh that sounds pretty great to me that sounds pretty great to me it's so, interesting uh, i've had um uh, like i have an enormous amount of respect for poker dealers uh, i could not do their job uh, I could not do their job for one session to uh, to say nothing of uh, doing it correctly day after day for long hours at, you know, inconvenient times of the day because that's when people want to play poker. Um, the, uh, the quality of dealers does vary, like, very wildly over the various rooms that I've been in. And um, one, one thing that I've noticed is that, uh, go figure, but uh, uh, Vegas dealers tend to be far better than uh, ones in other various uh, countries that I've uh, stopped in and just to play a little bit of poker in. Um, 
uh, I uh, I don't think I would bet on what the quality of the average dealer is like in uh, Japan until I actually uh, see a few hands of it. But um, probably a few sessions of it. But uh, uh, yeah, somewhat of a partisan, so uh, the appreciation for craft and uh, uh, general uh, work culture here might do well. Uh, or it might just be a, you know, for the first couple of years, it might be just strictly an experience thing, and it'll be tough to say. Sure. Yeah. I, so one, one, one thing to look for is rolling the deck. Uh, so if you don't know what that means, the, the, the deck should be held per, uh, parallel to the table. The bottom, the, the, the cut card should be you know, facing exactly the table. They, they, they should be parallel. You know what parallel means. Um, and that's even when, say, you're reaching to do something. Um, unless you're really disciplined about it and really trying hard. This is not something you will do naturally. But there used to be a day when, I'm told, in Las Vegas, if your boss saw you rolling the deck, you would be fired on the spot. It opens the door to a lot of cheating, at least in theory. Um, so, I yeah, that's, that's the one quick and dirty that's my favorite quick and dirty way to um see how disciplined uh you know a certain rooms staff is uh, about mm -hmm. about about the job so i i will be curious to see at least by that metric how how, how it's done in osaka mm -hmm. uh, as long as we're on this topic i don't know how interested folks in the audience are about the regulation of gambling etc cetera, etc cetera. very but, um, uh, oh cool uh, one of the interesting themes um so Japan has an interesting friendly kind of relationship with gambling in that uh, it is largely illegal, but pachinko is certainly a thing here. But pachinko isn't gambling for various um, <laughs> uh, grandfathered in slash we all agree to look the other way uh, reasons. Um, uh, the mechanics of that I could uh, go on for more time than we have. Uh, but the uh, as uh, the casinos are sort of getting sold to the polity as a uh, as a tourist magnet for folks largely from uh, the rest of Asia, uh, where obviously gambling culture kind of a thing. Uh, and uh, the uh, pushback in the polity has been, uh, we don't want these soaking you know, regular working Japanese people. And so uh, one of the mechanisms that uh, they've agreed on is that uh, there will be an entrance fee to get into the casino if you reside in Japan. The entrance fee will be something on the order of $70. Uh, and you'll you know, have some sort of uh, persistent card, uh, et cetera, which will only allow you to get into the casino something like four times a year. Uh, so that um, it's like very aggressively combating um, uh, the, you know, addiction or overspending, et cetera, that uh, uh, are frankly a concern of uh, uh, responsible gambling providers worldwide. Uh, and so I thought that was interesting. Uh, it is going to be a little inconvenient for me because under the, the rules that are written, um, I do count as living in Japan. So, uh, But then again, I probably should not be going to a casino more than four times a year myself. So uh, we'll work out. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in, it, it is said that in some parts of the world, such policies are branded as a way to protect um, people from the dangers of gambling, but are actually a way to keep undesirables out of the casino. Um, is that, is any of that plausibly going on here? It seems like no to me, but I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. The, uh, um, hmm. I think one could make some pretty pointed uh, arguments as to, uh, you know, what the level, like, um, 
various different gambling economies make more or less of their money at uh, various points along the spectrum. So, you know, uh, Vegas largely runs on slots and it largely runs on slots by uh, uh, played by uh, retirees who are not uh, particularly high up on the socioeconomic spectrum relative to the United States of America. Um, uh, Macau does not run on slots by people in that uh, bracket. Uh, and uh, I think there is uh, at least some level of, um, you know, we are going to attempt to make a play for high rollers from without loss of generality China. Uh, and uh, uh I would imagine they're going to attempt to make a play for high rollers from uh, from Japan. I would imagine speculatively that there are probably going to be ways that uh, if you are going to uh, happily lose a million dollars in a night that, uh, uh, you know, one would not necessarily get one's uh, card punched for the night. But uh, pure speculation on my point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm afraid I do have a hard stop coming up in a couple yep. minutes, so we're probably going to have to uh, wrap it up uh, pretty soon. Uh, I, I was about to say I know you have a hard stop coming up, and thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I really enjoy talking about poker and all those things. Uh, I'm Patty11 on Twitter, and if I can ever help anybody out with anything, uh, drop me an email. It's on my website at uh, www.calzumius.com. Uh, I'll you- save you the click. It's Patrick at that that uh, domain you, you might want to spell calzimius uh yeah i should really just switch to patio11.com it's much <laughs> easier um uh but uh, k-a-l-z-u-m-e-u-s.com thank you very much it was Thanks nice so to talk much. to you again have a great day nice to talk to you have a nice rest of your day folks and uh, uh insert poker appropriate sign off here <laughs> <laughs> i'm good and always patrick <laughs> I know you won't.